Morning, Bethel. Uh, would you take out your bulletins, please? I have a quick announcement for you. Um, we've been talking about this for some time now, but this is the week for Christian Thought Forum. Uh, and so if you would pull out, well, you could look at any page in your bulletin and get information on this, right? One of these two inserts or on the left side or in the center. Uh, obviously, this is a big deal for us. Uh, this is our eighth annual Christian Thought Forum. And what it is is an apologetics conference where we have invited uh, two national speakers to come up and to deal with uh, matters of sort of culture and theology uh, and hot button issues that we are all being forced to deal with. And uh, so we have two speakers coming up this Friday and Saturday, Nigel Cameron um, and Paul Copen. And Nigel Cameron is going to talk to us about bioethics. Uh, I don't know if you even know the field there, but basically... We have all of these things that technology enables us to do these days in matters of health, medicine, and whatnot. And sometimes we need to stop and ask the question, uh, should we do this? Just because we can doesn't mean we should. And he's going to help us walk through some of these things, and uh, both on sanctity of life, beginning of life, end of life, and what it means to be human, uh, which you think would be an obvious thing. And then we're going to also have Paul Cope, and he's the author of a book that I've referenced recently called, Is God a Moral Monster? There are some passages in the Old Testament, even the one we're looking at today, where sometimes God seems to be angry or even hostile or even advocating slavery or genocide. And we get puzzled when we see some of these stories and wonder why God hasn't taken a different tack than he did. And, uh, and so Paul Copen is going to help us understand God as he's revealed himself in the Old Testament. And uh, so those are things that you can be looking forward to. I will tell you this, that last year, uh, this event, our Christian Thought Forum, had the best spread of food I've ever seen at Bethel Church for any event ever. And a big part of that was the central feature of biscuits and gravy, which I'm a big fan of. So if you're helping out with that in some way, or you would like to help out with that in some way, I really like a biscuits and gravy. So just, you know, selfishly speaking. So with that, if you would bow with me in prayer, and then we'll go to God's word together. Let's pray. Father, I think even about the words of the song that we just sang, there's a puzzling line at the beginning. You didn't want heaven without us. Well, we know, God, that you were completely satisfied in your triune self as you relate each person of the Trinity. Uh, you were not needy, you were not without, but you were magnificent and gracious in love. The goodness that you enjoyed in triune fellowship, you've shared with mankind, and we rejoice in that. God, I pray that as we uh, look at your word now, that we would not see an angry, hostile God, but we would see all of your attributes on display, that we would know you as a God who is personal, has revealed yourself in Jesus Christ, and who has sought our rescue through his death. Lord, thank you that though each one of us in this room is sinners, that we don't have to live under that, but that through turning to Jesus in repentance and faith, we lay hold of the salvation you've offered for us, that you would grant us forgiveness, that you would even grant us the righteousness of Christ so that you wouldn't look at us and see sinners, but perfect sons and daughters as Christ was perfect on our behalf. So may we rejoice in that and know the goodness of our God. Lead us as we work through this text this morning so that we would understand your revelation of who you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
you would open your Bibles to the book of Numbers. We're going to be in chapter 11 for starters here. Numbers 11. Uh, This last week I reached out uh, to you on Facebook looking for some help with my sermon. So if the sermon this morning is bad, it's your fault. (laughs) Either because of what you contributed or what you didn't, just so you know. I was looking for some classic dad lines. Classic dad lines. Now some of you are really wishing you had entered a few, aren't you? Here's the classic dad line of my childhood. Close the door. We're not trying to heat the whole neighborhood. Anybody else get that one? I was the only one. Uh, Here are some of the submissions that you guys put out there. And uh, we had a winner, and I did give away a book first service. I'll tell you which one it was in just a moment. But here are some others that you submitted. Classic dad lines. This is not Burger King. You cannot have it your way. (laughs) Or this one, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. (laughs) There's a, a, a good alternate version of this one, which says, um, we can make another one of you. (laughs) This one is really good. Slow obedience is disobedience. I like that one. This is a classic. This is an older dad here. This is a cowboy dad even. Looks like your get up and go got up and went. (laughs) And this was our winner. Uh, Emily Abramovich sent it in. So, Ken, you're in here somewhere, I think. I saw you. Where is he? There he is. Yeah, you're hunkering down. Here's, I understand uh, this comes from your household, uh, which is, if you had to pay for it, you'd take better care of it. (laughs) That really resonated with my heart, Ken. So I chose that one. So Emily won the book. But here probably is the most quintessential dad line in history. If you're going to cry... I'll give you something to cry about. There it is. That's it right there. So this sniveling, whining person is going, okay, I feel better, Dad, right? Just choking it back. The funny thing is uh, about dad lines, we all find ourselves saying them. They find their way into our lives, our thinking, our values, our parenting. And something I have actually found is dad lines work. They're pretty effective tools. And it seems to me that in Numbers 10 and 11 here, we find in this very memorable incident uh, where Israel complains to the Lord and then Moses also complains to the Lord, we get a reaction from God that sounds an awful lot like a classic dad line. Something along the lines of, you want meat, I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat until it's coming out of your noses, is what God says here. Overall, in this passage, what I think we're meant to hear is this, that God hears our concerns. They matter to him. And our concerns can invite his compassion and his encouragement, but they can also invite his correction. And so we'll start off with Israel here. Uh, We see that they complain about their hardship. Uh, Chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now, the people complained about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Tabera because fire from the Lord had burned among them. 
So we're going to make just a few observations about this passage, about what we learn about God himself. First of all, we learn that God hears. God hears. Uh, There is this really interesting phrase here in the text that says, uh, in the hearing of the Lord. They complained in the hearing of the Lord. And it almost seems to convey that sometimes God hears and sometimes he doesn't. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. What we find here in this expression is what is called an anthropomorphism. Uh, and they occur regularly throughout the Old Testament. An anthropomorphism is basically where God is presented almost as a human, described in sort of human man-like ways. And we need to be careful not to take them too far. Later on in the same text, we'll find the expression, is the Lord's arm too short? As if God had an ear or had an arm. Okay? So we're not meant to see those things about God. God is not a man. God is not human in that way. He is spirit. God is spirit. Personal. Relational. And he hears our prayers. And he hears our whines. And he doesn't just hear on some occasions, but he hears in every instant, all the time. He hears all. He knows all. God hears. Secondly, we see here that God is angered. Something about Israel's complaint here evokes God's anger. And I think something that this uh, brings to our mind is that God is not just a force or an idea or a concept or an experience or an emotion but our God is a person a real person Uh, I was recently uh, listening to a local pastor and he equated God to a feeling or an experience and I sat there listening to him thinking what are you doing And I found in my own head sort of the sound of the voice of Treebeard from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, right? A wizard should know better. That's what was going on in my head. I'm thinking, a pastor should know better. You can't say that. That's not right. That's not theologically right. God is not an experience or an emotion or feeling. He's a person. And as with any person, God has emotions, intellect, and will. And our actions can grieve him. And our actions can bless him. And give him real joy and satisfaction and pleasure. God as a person has an array of motions. Just as all people do. Thirdly here, we see that God responds. In other words, God is actively engaged in the affairs of mankind. Deists will teach that God created the world, sort of wound it up like a clock, set it in motion, and then walked away from it, had nothing to do with it since. And nothing could be further from the truth. We see it here. Uh, Our God is actively engaged in the world around us. He knows what's on our heart. He responds to what's on our heart as he does here. Now, I think if we're honest and we look at this passage and we see God's reaction we see his anger and we see that holy fire singes the perimeter of the camp Uh, then i think it sort of brings to mind the question of what was it about this complaint that aroused the lord's anger that's something worth knowing right Uh, because probably most of us 
won't make it to the end of the day without complaining about something. Uh, some of you won't make it home. Some of you won't make it out of the service without complaining. Huh? Uh, so this first incident here of complaint is kind of interesting because it, it doesn't tell us what of it uh, makes God angry. It just sort of reports the news. It happened. They made this complaint. God got mad. It doesn't tell us exactly what it was that aroused his anger. But as we continue on, we see two other incidences of complaints. And from them, I think we get a greater sense of what it is that angers the Lord. Uh, so let's look at verse 4 here, and uh, we'll pick this up. Verse 4 says, the rabble with them. This means, the rabble means those really who were not Israelites, probably some who joined their exodus out of Egypt along the way and have kind of stayed with them. So they're kind of outsiders, but with them. But we'll see that these rabble incite some frustrations from within Israel as well. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Like that's truthful. Also the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in, in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves. It tasted like something made with olive oil. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. All right, so there's the first complaint. We see the complaint of Israel. Now we're going to get to sort of contrast that with another complaint. We see a complaint from Moses here. Verse 10, Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. Well, Moses is a little whiny, isn't he? And so is Israel for that matter. So what I want to recognize here is that both Israel and Moses complain. And what's interesting to me is it seems that God responds very differently to Moses' complaint than he does to Israel's complaint. Why is that? Right? The four-year-old in me wants to know. Why? What's the deal here? Moses, as we see, he's encouraged. The Lord seems to respond to his complaint positively and actually give him something that he wants. Look at verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. That's pretty cool. I mean, if you're Moses and you're feeling heavy laden with all these burdens and you're feeling like these people are whining and you can't give them what they want and they're not satisfied and you go to the Lord and complain even if a bit whiny and God says, I got you. Bring some fellas, 
We're going to empower them, and you're going to get the help that you need. That's, that's pretty awesome. God answered his prayer. Uh, but think how whiny it was. Just kill me now, God. You think this is like an expression of a modern-day moody teenager or, you know, a Facebook meme or something like that. Oh, kill me now. No, it came from one of the patriarchs of our faith, Moses. Somehow, God is sympathetic to his complaint. But what's fascinating is God responds very differently to Israel's complaint. And I'm just going to build the tension here before I get to the resolution. So let's see how Israel gets it. Verse 18. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it because, and here's the kicker, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Uh, and so God basically establishes his own quail eating contest here, right? You ever, you ever seen one of these hot dog, Nathan's hot dog eating contests? They're disgusting, right? Uh, this past week in staff meeting, we were trying to remember uh, who the winner was. For a long time, the reigning champion, do you know who it was? Kobayashi. I heard a few people say it. And I can't remember the name of the fellow who won this year. This is the kind of research we do in staff meetings, you know, important stuff. And we were trying to figure out what the record was, the current record for most hot dogs now eaten in a 10-minute span. You know what it is? 74. Go home and try to eat seven hot dogs. Just try seven. 74. I'm of the age where any hot dog past one is too many, right? And even one is probably too many. But God takes their complaint. We want meat. And he's going to stuff it in their face, literally. Uh, Moses, however, is not done whining. Uh, he comes back to the Lord again. He seems to feel like it's his responsibility to provide this. So he's going to whine about this. Look at verse 21. But Moses says, here I am among 600,000 men on foot. And you say, I'll give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Now skip down to verse 31. There's a fascinating little passage there that's a really interesting bit, but we don't have time for it this morning, so we've got to skip down to verse 31. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep. You, guys, you all know what a cubit is, right? Two cubits deep, three feet. Imagine quail as high as the chairs around you, as far as you could see. Two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that night, all that day and night, and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 omers, which is 60 bushels. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, 
The anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth Hateva, because there they buried the people who had craved the other food. Wow, uh, what a story. Uh, how could you forget? Uh, you want meat, I'll give you meat. You're going to eat it for a month. It's going to be coming out of your noses, three feet high in every direction as far as you could see. And God laid people to death for their response. That's a, that's a tricky passage, right? I mean, it brings up some questions for me. Why is one complaint so offensive to God that he would respond this way? And yet Moses' complaints seemingly okay. Why does he bring a complaint? Why does Moses bring a complaint uh, to God and he gets compassion, encouragement, even what he asks for? And yet, when Israel brings such a complaint, they get a severe correction. And I think what it shows us is that not all complaints are created equal. Uh, that it is not the complaint in and of itself that angers the Lord, but rather the nature of it. Israel had forgotten God. And that is what fed their complaint. Uh, and God tells us as much, you have rejected the Lord who is among you. In fact, what's really interesting about this incident, it's a bit of an echo of something that's already occurred. In fact, when they left Egypt, we can see this in Exodus 16, when they left Egypt and were headed to Mount Sinai, they also complained there about, uh, about the manna that the Lord was providing. And God basically says in, in Exodus 16, 4, that he gives it to them to gather one day at a time as a test, an ongoing and regular test of whether or not they will obey and follow him. So in this instance, where they are not doing that and rejecting it and longing for food that they supposedly had for free, right? Melons and cucumbers and pot pies and whatever else it is they said that they had. Then the Lord is angry because this test is basically shown they have abandoned him. They have forgotten to see his hand at work. And so it seems to me that God is specifically grieved here that Israel is blind to his provision. He has given them what they need. He is taking them to the promised land and they're missing it. And so it's their ingratitude, their lack of thankfulness, their lack of faith that really grieves the heart of God here. It seems that their fears and their fatigue and just growing weary of this one kind of food is causing them to long for Egypt, even to color in a better light than it ever was, and forgetting God's good gifts in the present and God's good gifts ahead. Uh, they're already forgetting what God has done and what he has given and what he's delivering them to. And that's Israel's fault here. Moses, however, I think conversely, Moses' complaint uh, is about the heart of the people. He's complaining that they have already forgotten the Lord. In other words, Moses' complaint seems more resonant with the heart of God. The people are complaining against God. Moses is complaining about the people who are complaining against God. You see the difference there? I would paint it this way. There is a difference between a complaint and a lament. A difference between a complaint and a lament. In a complaint, we're representing our needs. 
our wants, our singular desires, our limited perspective, our unmet longings. In other words, complaints are saturated with concern for self. But a lament, a lament is grieved for God's heart. In a lament, we express our outrage that God's name has not rightly been regarded, that God's ways are not being followed, that God's hand has not been acknowledged, or that God's provisions are not being celebrated. A complaint is saturated with concern for self. A lament is saturated in concern for God and what matters to him. And I think that is the fundamental difference here and operationally why God responds favorably to one and negatively to the other. And I think if each of us were to look carefully at our own lives, we would see, we would acknowledge, we have too many complaints and not enough laments. Sometimes a lament is the most worshipful thing we can do. Sometimes we look at the affairs of the world around us or the life of an individual or some act of injustice and we ought to look at it with the eyes of God and say, that's wrong. God's heart is grieved in this. We're outraged, not for us, but for God and for his name and for his creation. A lament is an act of worship and the Psalms are filled with them. Psalms of lament. Because sometimes it's the most worshipful thing we can do to say, that's wrong before God's eyes. And it calls for a lament. That's very different than, we used to have pots of meat. You see the difference. I think it would be wrong, however, if we came away from this passage thinking that God doesn't want to hear our hearts or doesn't want to hear our concerns or our needs or our longings. It would be completely wrong if we came away from this passage thinking that because that's the other half of the Psalms, right? Uh, they teach us to pray in that way. In fact, Jesus himself teaches us to pray in that way. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. There is a calling out and a crying out to God, right? But here's the thing. Are we grieved for God or are we just griping about what we don't have? Are we really grateful for what God has given or are we just greedy for more? Do we cry out to God in fear or do we cry out to God in faith? The posture of our prayers is really the fundamental issue here. And so it kind of, this passage I think teaches us that dad was really right all along. If you're going to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. If you're going to whine, there'll be a reason. And so I would encourage you, if we're going to be grieved for things, let's be grieved for God's name more than our own. Let's be grieved about the right things and for the right reasons. Too many of us are grieved for our own good and not grieved for the glory of God. And so what I think is really exposed here in Israel is what is exposed here in all of us. That we are too quick to see what we still want and too slow to rejoice and what God has already given. Uh, it's really fascinating to me when you look at all of the celebrations that God instituted for Israel, celebrations to commemorate and to remember God's active faithfulness so they could see what God's hand at work and remember it and tell it to their children again and again and again. And we don't even practice sort of the Christian calendar today anymore. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I think 
Christians, I think the church would be a lot better off if we were better about celebrating the things that God has already done. God wants us to rejoice in these things and build up our faith in these kinds of celebrations. And that's our last point here, that God wants us to cultivate thankfulness. In fact, in the passage preceding this, if you go to Numbers 10 real quick here, this is the passage that sort of precedes the whining of Israel. We see how God basically sent them off from Sinai to Canaan here, or towards Canaan. And we see that he was trying to cultivate in them a heart of thankfulness. And so he gave them some specific instructions that they were to basically create these two silver horns. Uh, and that they were to sound them upon leaving the camp. But then there were other occasions for using them as well. So if you'd read with me in verse 8. The sons of Aaron, the priests, are to blow the trumpets. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you in the generations to come. When you go into battle in your own land against an enemy who is oppressing you, sound a blast on the trumpets. Then you will be remembered by the Lord, your God, and rescued from your enemies. Also, at your times of rejoicing, your appointed festivals and new moon feasts, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord, your God. Out of all of that, what I want you to see is just this big picture. God didn't want them to forget. Celebrate things. Have feasts have memorials. Even the using of these trumpets was to be an audible thing to ring in their ears such that God has been faithful for you. He's acted on your behalf. God invites his people to remember with celebrations and wonderful things to build up their faith. And so I want to just give you maybe some ideas uh, that you might practice in your own life uh, to cultivate a heart of thankfulness so you won't fall into the complaining nature that Israel had here. The first would be this, to cultivate a habit of prayer. Uh, uh, it's long been a tradition that before meal, that we would simply say thanks. Simple thanks. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I has, even as I was writing this out, I had sitting there shaking my head thinking, our family has fallen out of the habit of doing this. Uh, not by choice, not by design or desire, quite frankly, because... We're busier now than ever before. I feel like the most stationary thing about our lives is the table. Uh, the rest of us are just passing through. It's like a drive-through. So to sit together and to pause and say thanks has actually gotten harder, but probably all the more necessary. So cultivate a heart of thanks, thankfulness by saying thanks before a meal. Uh, my habit when I go out hunting is that uh, if God gives me success and I'm able to harvest an animal even as I'm walking up to this animal, is to say, God, thank you for giving this to me. I don't want to ever see that as something that I've taken, but rather something that God has given. And so I just say a very quick, quick prayer of thanks. So maybe uh, some, some of your prayer habits are a way to cultivate thankfulness. Also, the community of faith is an instrument that God has given to us to cultivate thankfulness. Gathering together on Sunday mornings for worship is important to cultivate a heart of thanks. Um, you, you probably all know you can, get ser you can get access to our sermons online and you can listen to them uh, away from here. Uh, there are times I would like to stop doing that. Uh, here's why. You need to be here. Worship is not just downloading content. It's being with God's people together before God and together corporately praising his name 
and receiving his word together. Now, I know travels and things take you away from here, and when you're away and away for an extended period of time, I'm really glad that you can, in those instances, download a sermon, and that's the only reason they're still there. We are not trying to create an alternate reality for you where you can have your private little worship service at home all by your onesie because that is not what God is after. You need to be the people of God together. So community of faith gathered together for worship is a way of cultivating thankfulness and giving our offerings as well. Giving a portion of what we have on a regular basis, setting aside a portion to give back to God is a way of saying, I know that what I have did not come from my own hands, but ultimately from you. And I will give back a portion of what you've given to me to facilitate worship and thankfulness. Uh, Some of you are creative types. So I've talked about a habit of prayer. I've talked about sort of the community of faith. Another sphere might be expression. Some of you are really creative and maybe journaling would be the thing for you. Where you can put a nice fine pen to a nice piece of paper and begin to write out what it is that God has done for you. Uh, I'll be very transparent with you. This, this particular season for me, uh, after hunting season, moving into the winter, October, November, this is a hard season for me each year. I begin to feel some of the seasonal stuff, uh, and you do, and then when you do, I feel it more, and uh, that's kind of the nature of uh, my calling here. And I feel like I'm feeling the heaviness a little stronger uh, this year. And when that's on, I can get that negative Um, sort of internal voice going. You know what I mean? And you can start rehearsing uh, thoughts and and ideas about things that aren't true. It's just how you feel. And I find that it's an important discipline for me from time to time to just sit down and write out, where do I see the hand of God at work? Where are good things happening? What are things I can celebrate? And I can start making my list. And I find that as I make my list, my heart lifts because I can see the Lord because I've taken my eyes intentionally to see the the Lord's work. And uh, I have to be more uh, intentional about that this particular season. Some of you are really creative with maybe painting or drawing or photography. Uh, I would encourage you, you know, while the light's still good (laughs) and it's still warmish, get your camera, go to Kramer's Field, capture a few images not of the macro level but of the micro where you get to see the handiwork of God and the way that he has made provision for us on this planet and and see if that doesn't just fuel your soul God has been good he has been good the last fear I would talk about would be maybe in your public witness Uh, share your faith with someone when you talk about what God has done in your life and that he has saved you for your sin and you express the gospel to another person, you're rehearsing the joy that you take in your own salvation. Philemon 1.6 says, I pray that you will be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a thorough knowledge of every good thing you have in Christ Jesus. There is something to speaking out loud to another person, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that causes you to realize, I'm a recipient of this. God's grace poured out in Jesus so that by laying hold of it through faith and through repentance, my sin is encountered against me, but crucified at the cross and his righteousness transferred to my account, I stand secure before the Lord. And when you say that to other people, you're rehearsing that belief and that celebration that you have that yourself. 
And the last thing I would ask you to consider, and if you haven't already considered it for this week, you're too late, consider baptism. Baptism is a public way of telling the community of faith that I'm a Christian because of what Christ has done. And I want you to see it, the work that God has already done in me. And I want you to know that I stand with you as a Christian and I want you to walk this out with me. And that's a great public declaration to celebrate what God has done. This morning we saw a family of five get baptized. So you missed that if you weren't in first service. But I think we have five this service as well. And so we've got Haley over here, and we've got Trevor and Maddie and a couple others in here that Mark is doing, so pretty cool. Uh, I want to ask you, if you would, uh, before we close the service here, to give shape to our concerns and our prayers, a proper shape, that we would look to the Lord's Prayer and to remember the way Jesus instructed us to pray not in the whining or the wailing of Israel, but of a child going to their father asking for their needs. So Andrew, if you would project it, and church, if you would pray this with me, let's close with the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.